Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Laguerre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, what is Christianity's strongest argument? We introduced uh, that argument on the last podcast, and Ken, you're going to delve into the topic some more, but maybe a little bit of a refresher for people who missed that first podcast. Who are we talking about uh, that says that this is Christianity's strongest argument? Yeah, we mentioned uh, the prominent atheist philosopher, Dr. Keith M. Parsons, a longtime uh, philosopher, has two doctoral degrees, one in philosophy and one in the history and philosophy of science. So he's well uh, equipped to address these issues. He wrote an article in 2009 entitled Christianity's Strongest Argument. And it's important to realize that Parsons not, is not sympathetic to the existence of God. He's not sympathetic to Christianity, but he's very candid. And in fact, here's what he says in this article. You can get it on the web. Just type in Keith M. Parsons, Christianity's Strongest Argument, and you'll be able to find it. But this is what Parsons says. He says, so the Christian depiction of the human condition seems to be spot on. This is one thing Christianity gets exactly right. There is something deeply and seemingly irremediably wrong with us. We stain everything we touch. Even the citadel of reason is breached. So chalk one big up for Christianity. Well, I have long uh, appreciated uh, Dr. Parsons. Uh, I mentioned a book where I first came across him. It was a book entitled, Does God Exist? Uh it was a recorded debate that had now been put into print between J.P. Moreland, Christian philosopher, Kai Nielsen, an atheist philosopher. And the people who were commenting were Peter Kraft, Anthony Flew, former atheist who became somewhat of a deist, William Lane Craig, Christian philosopher, Dallas Willard, another Christian philosopher, and Keith Parsons. And as I read the review of that debate, I thought, wow, Parsons is sharp. Uh, he's he's very careful. And I mentioned uh, that I heard a debate by Parsons and William Lane Craig, and I think Bill Craig is the best Christian debater uh, around. I, I think he is amazing in his knowledge of philosophy and theology, even though I differ with him from time to time. By the way, William Lane Craig doesn't accept original sin, as Augustine put it, so that would be an area I differ with him. But Craig um, is very successful in his debates. Uh, He comes off very professionally, very carefully. Um, He debated uh, Keith Parsons, and I think I would say it was probably a draw. Uh, Or if I had to pick a winner, I might pick Parsons. Uh, So he is a very thoughtful man. And he says the best argument for Christianity is original sin. And I think he's saying more than he realizes. I think that is a very powerful statement because if Christianity, if the Bible gets the human condition correct, then I think there's good reason to think that the solution to that uh, problem is correct. Namely, God has come into the world in the person of Christ, laid down his life as a way of bringing forgiveness to us. 
So that's kind of what we talked a little bit about. And uh, I'd like to talk more about that and kind of see what other Christian thinkers have said about original sin. All right. Sounds good. Well, let's let's also kind of remind everybody that uh, what original sin is. I like to say I've never met a perfect human being. And, and sometimes that's a little off-putting because, you know, I had heroes growing up. And when I met them, I realized they're not all that different than me. Um, I remember reading books about Ted Williams, who was my favorite baseball player, great hitter, grew up in San Diego here in Southern California. When I read biographies of Ted Williams, uh, yeah, he was a great baseball player, but he was kind of a tortured soul. Very heroic, 30, flew 39 missions in Korea, but his life in many ways was a wreck. Um, you know, he didn't treat women very well, didn't treat his kids very well. I got another hero, Joe. He's a basketball player, Jerry West. I think West is almost as good as Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. He was just an amazing player. The more I've read about his life, uh, he's a tortured soul, uh, struggled in his family relationships. You know, whoever you whoever you idolize, um, you know, Luther had his problems. Calvin has his problems. Cranmer had his problems. Augustine had his problems. Thomas Aquinas had his problems. I have my problems. You have your problems. I've never met a perfect human being. Now, I have met uncommonly humble and gracious and loving people, um, but they would even admit that they have moral and spiritual flaws and that they struggle with self. Now, if you think of the, the seven deadly sins, now there's no list in the Bible of seven deadly sins. That's a, a theological description that comes out of the Middle Ages. Uh, I'll give them to you alphabetically, anger, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, and sloth. Anger is not always a sin. Jesus was angry. You can be justifiably angry. But it's interesting how if you don't control your anger, you can get in real trouble very quickly. Um, people have killed other people because they're angry. Well, three of those sins seem very connected to the self, anger, envy, and pride. Um, you know, we struggle with those kinds of things. We struggle with our selfishness. So this idea of original sin would say that we seem to have a congenital moral condition. We can't cure, that can't be cured in this life completely. And the problem is God tells us in the Old Testament and Jesus reminds us in the New Testament that he only has two commandments. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus simply repeats what is in the Torah, what's in the Hebrew Bible. But as hard as we endeavor, and C.S. Lewis said, you don't know how bad you are until you try very hard to be good. That's in mere Christianity. Um, as much as I strive to be altruistic, as much as I strive to move away from myself, um, there is this limitedness, this brokenness, this fallenness that all of us face. And so we don't need a prophet, though prophets are very helpful. Moses, uh, you know, Elijah, 
Isaiah, the great prophets of Israel. Um, there are there have been moral reformers who have done very important works uh, in in our life, the life of our nation, the life of our civilization. But ultimately, our brokenness, our fallenness, our sinfulness, the only way we can love God and love our neighbor ourselves is to be forgiven of those sins and then to allow God's grace to begin to change us. So original sin, what does it involve? Um, it involves the fact that in Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were our federal representatives. They were the first humans, but not just the first humans, they were representative humans. And they ate the forbidden fruit and, in a sense, put themselves above God. They rebelled against God. And that fallenness that, they, that resulted in Genesis 3 led to a human nature, a human condition uh, that involves uh, moral degradation, human death, uh, and guilt in Adam. So the traditional view of original sin affirmed by Catholics and many Protestants would be that uh, we've sinned in Adam. In fact, Augustine said we were in the loins of Adam. We were part of his body, if you will. So that's, a, that's original sin. Uh, here is a quotation from theopedia.com, one that I like. It says, uh, the doctrine of original sin holds that every person born into the world is tainted by the fall, such that all humanity is ethically debilitated and people are powerless to rehabilitate themselves unless rescued by God. So uh, Muhammad can't do it as a prophet. The, different, the major difference, one of the major differences between being a historic Christian and being a historic Muslim is that in Christianity, you need a savior. Uh, having a model uh, or a person who can point you in the right direction, it's not enough. God really does expect you to love him and your neighbor as, as yourself. And if, and if you don't, he's going to hold you accountable for that. So, Joe, I think that when somebody, you know, the smart atheist philosopher, uh, Keith Parsons, when he says that Christianity, and again, he says, uh, the Christian depiction of the human condition seems to be spot on. I think he's, I think he's conceding more than maybe he thinks he is. Um, if you can explain the riddle of humanity, I think you, you're in a good position to think that maybe you're onto the truth. Mm -hmm. So I want to I want to give some quotations and to talk about original sin, but I want to let you have any reaction or comments to what we've said thus far. No, I appreciate the the thoughts so far, and you can keep going. All right, now let me let me introduce a few things about original sin. Um, I'm going to call this the sign of original sin, and I'm borrowing here from. I think one of the best Christian theologians living today, his name's Gerald R. McDermott. He happens to be an Anglican theologian, but he's written on world religions. He's done a lot of writing. He has some recent books about Israel and the church. Here he, he describes in his great little book that influenced my, my book about classic Christian thinkers. He has a book entitled The Great Theologians, A Brief Guide. 
he says this, he says, we seem to be handicapped by inherent self-obsession. We seem to be handicapped by inherent self-obsession. I think that's kind of the sign of original sin. I think I, I think if, and, and I plan to do a couple shows on this topic as well, Joe, I want to talk about is pride the greatest sin? And I think you're going to discover that throughout church history, that was the consensus, mm. that pride is the ultimate sin. It's made, it's what made Lucifer the devil. It's what, it's ultimately Adam and Eve. I'm going to exalt myself. I know God has said this, but I'm going to do my own thing. Um, and then Paul talks about the problems of pride. We seem to be handicapped by an inherent self-obsession. Um, I hate to admit it, but there are times where I recognize I'm living in my own little world, that I'm, think I'm thinking way too much about myself. Uh, sometimes suffering has been very meaningful to me because it's forced me to realize how I have, I can take my eyes off of myself and there are other people who are hurting. There are other people who need my attention. So I, I think if you struggle with self-obsession, you are experiencing one of the leading signs of original sin. And that, that comes out in anger. Why are you angry? Well, I'm, I remember a, a counselor I went to one time and I said, you know, I'm kind of angry at my my parents. And he said to me, he said, well, uh, usually when you're anger, when you're angry, you're expecting something that's not being given. I thought, whoa. When you're angry, I'm not getting the attention that I want. How about envy? I don't want something good to happen to Joe because I want something good to happen to me. I don't want something good to happen to other people. I want good to happen to me. Well, why can't I just be gracious and thankful what, what happens to Joe and what happens to others? Why does it all have to always be about me? And then pride, um, which many Christian thinkers have described as an excessive love of yourself. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, the great Catholic philosopher, he defined a couple different types of pride. He said, one pride is you think you have a, a qualification or a expertise that you really don't have. Or you do have that expertise, but you think you, you caused it for yourself. Or you don't want people to have that expertise that you have. And think about it. I mean, Lucifer didn't have a sin nature. He's a created angel. It appears from scripture that he was an exalted creature of God, an angelic being, didn't have a sin nature. Uh, so there wasn't a serpent to tempt him. He wasn't fallen or broken. Uh, what does he do? It seems like he takes a good thing himself and exalts himself above God. And so you have the sin of idolatry. Um you know, what is it, if, if God is who he says he is, if God is utter truth, beauty, uh, wisdom, God is love, God is all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present, completely good, has all of these uh, omni-qualities, but no, I'm not going to worship him. I want I want that to come to me. 
Well, uh, I think I think Gerald McDermott is right. I think that uh, one of the signs of original sin is selfishness, self-obsession. Um, you know, I, I had an argument, a logical argument, with a Muslim. And he said to me on social media, he said, the Bible doesn't teach original sin. If it does, Paul made it up. Jesus never believed it. And I said, well, you don't believe in original sin as a Muslim? He said, no. I said, okay, well, could I could I encourage you to try an experiment? Stop lusting. Stop lying. Stop being selfish. Uh, I think very quickly you're going to realize sin nature is uh, uh, stronger than you think in that context. So this idea with the self, it seems that of the seven deadly sins, and, and again, Thomas ranks them in the order of worst to, to least, and he says that anger and envy and pride are deeply rooted in our self-love. So this kind of uh, self-obsession, and and I would say to our listeners, if this strikes a chord, it's just good evidence that the Bible is true, that we are that way. Um, and what we need is not a, uh, a book that will give us self-help. We need a savior. We need somebody to come along and say, um, you're forgiven. Uh, and and God, God has completely accepted the, the atonement for this uh, sin. Let me move to another area of original sin. Um, and I, I really appreciate this very much. Uh, original sin has a tendency to disorder human lives. Um, and I talk a lot about this, and I, I believe that I believe that human addiction is tied to to this. Um, you know, gluttony, um, you know, an inordinate uh, desire for or excessive eating and drinking. Um, I think that people get addicted to these things, but the reason why they get addicted to these things is because of this broken nature. Uh, but it, it could apply to other things. It can apply to money. Money is a good thing. I, I, I like it when I can pay the mortgage. I like it when I've got some money in the bank. I can buy groceries and groceries have gone up quite a bit in the last couple of years. It's nice to have some money um, to, to utilize. It's nice to give to my church and do all of these things. But then uh, many people, money becomes the most important thing in their life. Their identity is shaped around uh, how much money they've accumulated. But when they're lying on their deathbed, what will that money do for them? We could apply it to sexuality. God likes sex. He created it. God likes bodies. God wants us to be faithful to our spouses. He's pro-marriage. He's pro-children. What do people do with it? Well, all you need to do is look on the internet, um, look at the pornography, look at what people do to this good thing. When a man and a woman who are married make love, they make love to the glory of God. What have we done with it? Uh, well, some people have 
so perverted it that they capture kids, boys and girls, and sell them into sexual slavery. Talk about evil. So sin disorders. Now here's Peter Craved. He is a Catholic. He's one of my favorite Christian philosophers. Uh, he's a Catholic and I'm a Protestant, so we're going to differ on some things, but I think he gets a lot of things right. Peter Craved says this. He says, we are all insane. That is what original sin means. Sin is insanity. It is preferring finite joy to infinite joy, creatures to the creator, an unhappy godless self to a happy God-filled self. Only God can save us from this disease. That is what the name Jesus means, God saves. So he's not, he's not delving into the psychological assessment of some people have mental illnesses, but it's like we've all gone crazy in that instead of accepting God, we've accepted these temporal goods. And I don't think I'm making any news by saying that the history of humanity involves a great deal of unhappiness. So it disorders our lives. And I think that that's a powerful point about sin, that sin often, it's not just choosing bad things, but it's perverting good things. Mm -hmm. And that is back to the, to kind of the core of uh, our nature. By the way, that citation from Crafe comes from his book, Prayer for, for Beginners. Let me stop, Joe. Any input, any comments you want to make about those two ideas, that the sign is self-obsession and that sin, original sin, takes the form of disordering our lives. No, I like it, uh, particularly in light of um, some of the things, some of the ways that our sinfulness expresses itself in contemporary culture. Uh, uh, Christian thinkers have identified some of these uh, issues going on in the culture as uh, disordered loves or affections and uh, a rejection of uh, creation, the way God created us. So it, it resonates with me, and I think we can find some of this disorderedness in our culture today. You know, what's interesting, Joe, there are studies both in sociology, in psychology, um, that indicate that if you were to live as a Christian, uh, let's say, for example, you know, you don't have sex until you get married and you stay married for life and you're faithful to your spouse. There's a lot of literature that indicates that you will experience uh, a greater contentment in life. Uh, and yet, what do we do? Uh, people are tempted, instead of being faithful to your spouse, they're tempted to be unfaithful. Uh, when it comes to money, if you give your wealth, if you live as a generous person, it's often associated with a greater sense of contentment and fulfillment in life. But what do we do? We want to hold on to every dollar. Uh, food and drink, uh, you're going to live longer. You're going to live a uh, more contented life if you practice self-control. Uh, you know, the fruit of the spirit. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, 
uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if sin disorders us, then the process of sanctification is reordering us. And, I, yeah. you know, I have to say it's been helpful to, for me, I think even in my Christian life, to tell myself, Ken, uh, God knows best. And when God says you're going to find greater contentment in doing the right thing, uh, that that has helped me to to focus on those kinds of things. So original sin is kind of seen, and, and again, I think here we're relying on Augustine, think of it as a hereditary disease. Think of it as a malady that has been passed on, and the only solution to it is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And then that process of, of grace. Now, I want to say one more thing, and then I'm going to go to Charles Hodge, the great Presbyterian theologian. I also want to say that I think we can be out of balance on these issues. I have already said a couple times that I think Christians, like most people, fail to appreciate the severity of sin. But I also want to make the point that don't forget about grace. Not only are we forgiven in Christ, but God's grace can empower our lives. He can change our lives. He takes people out of bondage to various sins and restores them in their life. And we can view sin as being uh, too slight, or we can view sin as being too heavy and lose sight of grace. And I think I think that's probably right, not only in individuals' lives, but in Christendom. I think that... Uh, Western Christendom has a stronger view of sin and therefore has a stronger view of grace. But that doesn't mean that um, the other branches of Christendom don't have something to say. Now, here is, uh, here's Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge was the great Presbyterian theologian at Princeton before Princeton became liberal. Westminster Seminary, many of the Presbyterians left Princeton because of debates over things like the authority of scripture, inerrancy, and issues like that. Hodge has a three-volume set uh, on Christian theology, systematic theology. And I, I, remember, um, I remember when I was first reading through Hodge, he has long sections where he quotes the Latin and the Greek, and he doesn't translate them. So I, when I was at Talbot, I went to my friend and teacher, one of my mentors there, Robert Sosi. I said, Dr. Sosi, Hodge has these long quotes in Greek and Latin, but he doesn't translate them. I'm, I'm, I don't think I can translate. He said, Ken, those were the days when men were men. <laughs> uh, Hodge was a first-rate thinker and had, had relationships with other friends there, like Benjamin Warfield and um, J. Gresham Machen. These were some of the great Presbyterian theologians of the 19th and 20th century. But here's what Hodge says. This is from his Systematic Theology, Volume 2, under his section on anthropology. He says, original sin is the only rational solution of the undeniable fact of the deep, universal, and early manifested sinfulness of men in all ages, of every class, and in every part of the world. I want to read that again. It is so good. Original sin is the only rational solution of the undeniable fact of the deep, universal, and early manifested sinfulness of men in all ages, of every class, and in every part of the world. 
again, our postmodern, post-truth society wants to tell us that it's all about race, gender, uh, and uh, uh, class. Uh, we've we're being given Marxist categories of thought. Instead of truth, goodness, and beauty, it's race, gender, and class. I would say the problem is not skin color. It's not skin, it's sin. And white people are not to be blamed for everything because we're, we're all broken, fallen sinners. And yet we're made in the image of God. Um, it's not about uh, the seemingly irreconcilable differences between men and women. It's not between the oppressor, rich, the oppressed, the poor. All of that finds its root in original sin. And I, I think that uh, reform is good in all of these areas, but it but it is, I think, a recognition of that uh, element. And I mean, Joe, why aren't there exceptions? Why don't we meet people who are perfect? Why why did why is it a universal element? Why does it happen in every class? You got a good education or a bad education? You're very cultured. You're not cultured. Reinhard Heydrich, the mastermind of the Holocaust, is trained in, in classical music. Um, and here's a guy who's planned the Holocaust. So Germany in the 1930s had a higher rate of education than seemingly any other culture. They had more bachelor's degrees, more master's degrees, more doctrinal degrees per capita per their population. And what comes out of it? One of the greatest catastrophes in the history of the world. This idea, um, it's deep. It's, it's, he says it's undeniable. It's deep. It's universal. It's manifested in all ages, all classes, every part of the world. He says it's the rational solution. Um, I will say again, respectfully to Professor Parsons, I think he's touched on something even more important than he may even realize that this is this is a diagnosis of the human condition. Well, if the Bible has the right diagnosis, then maybe it has the right cure. So I love that quotation by Charles Hodge, even though uh, my Greek and Latin skills didn't have uh, didn't always give me the capacity to enjoy what the quotes he had. Mm. Here's another thinker, Blaise Pascal, and everybody who knows, who listens to Clear Thinking, how much I like Pascal, how much I enjoy reading his writings, how uh, gifted I think that he was. Um, interestingly enough, he struggled with pride. Uh, he was a, uh, you know, a progeny. He was very, very smart. Uh, there's a story that when he met Rene Descartes, the great other French philosopher, he corrected him. Uh, and uh, and uh, Descartes looked at him and says, you know, smart aleck kid, you know, type of thing. Well, um, but Pascal's the person who says on your deathbed, what's your knowledge of science going to do for you? What's your knowledge of philosophy going to do for you? What's your money going to do for you? When, when, it, when you get around to dying, what are you going to do? Now, here's a lengthy quotation. I, I want to read it, and uh, it takes a little thought through, but 
let's just take it on. He says, uh, this is in the Ponce's uh, little book that he wrote in French meaning reflections or thoughts. He says, it is, however, an astonishing thing that the mystery furthest removed from our knowledge, namely that of the transmission of sin, should be a fact without which we can have no knowledge of ourselves. For it is beyond doubt that there is nothing which more shocks our reason than to say that the sin of the first man has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from this source, seem incapable of participation in it. The transmission does not only seem to us impossible, it seems also very unjust. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine, and yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. The knot of our condition takes its twists and turns in this abyss, so that man is more inconceivable without this mystery than the mystery is inconceivable to man. Could I translate that in the simplest way? I think Pascal is telling us that the doctrine of original sin is so powerful and so difficult that it, that it kind of eludes our common sense. But he says, without it, you can't understand human beings. You can't understand yourself. I think that that's a powerful point. I think that that's a powerful point to one of the biggest challenges to Christianity brought by secularists today, and it has to do with the hiddenness of God. Now, no doubt, there are times where God seems to elude us. Uh, even in the Old Testament, it talks about a God who hides. Of course, it could be that, you know, when I feel God is not close to me, Sometimes it's because I need to confess my sins, sometimes because I have intentionally uh, strayed away. You know, I'm not reading scripture enough, I'm not praying enough, not being faithful about my church attendance. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says that, you know, uh, people stray. It's, it's not that people, when, when non-Christians leave the faith, Lewis says, it's not because they've heard an argument that disproves the resurrection. Rather, they just kind of fall away, and then they look for arguments to affirm their non-belief. Well, um, I know that's not going to be very pleasant for a non-Christian to hear, an atheist, but it could be that when it comes to the absence of God, you can't come to God on your terms. You have to come to him on his terms. You have to admit that you're fallen and you're broken. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a situation where it came to me admitting that I was at fault and how many different things I would do to, to keep from admitting, you know what, I'm, I'm sorry, what I did was wrong. It's not based on I was tired. It's not based upon anything else. I just did it and it was wrong and I'm sorry. I think that this brokenness means that we push back against the existence of God, because the God of the Bible is not a God you'd ever want to invent. He's morally perfect. Um, and I think that the hiddenness could be a cognitive bias that comes out of this broken human condition, and thus the greatness of God. 
and and his his grace. Joe, what do you think about that Pascal explanation? Yeah, well, I was tracking with you. I, I have it here in front of me, that paragraph, and I love it. Uh, on this idea of uh, not understanding ourselves unless we understand the doctrine of original sin, I guess I'm going back to uh, uh, Parsons again, the atheist who concedes that this doctrine seems to explain human beings and especially our rottenness. Um, I, I would want to know what's going on in his mind because, and you talked about this, that maybe he's conceding more than he realizes. If if uh, you do allow that perhaps Christianity is correct on this, I think he called it chalk one, big one up for Christianity. Uh, the doctrines are consistent. One, one flows from another. <laughs> Jesus uh, came to this earth to do his work to take care of this problem. So where does he draw the line? And I, I guess I would hope that he's looking at the whole package, uh, having having exceeded this point. Uh, I don't know. You see what I'm getting at? Do you, do you happen to do. know if he's thought I, I some more about this and what he thinks? Now, let me read you. This is again from his article, Christianity's Best Argument. He says, Aren't the doctrines of original sin and total depravity simply thinly guised misanthropy? At one time, I would have answered the last question with a resounding yes. Actually, I, I might still answer the question in the affirmative. What has changed is that I increasingly regard misanthropy as a rational view. I think Dr. Parsons is really telling us that he does understand how you can... Uh, how sin can affect your mind, how it can affect your reason. So when, you know, Christian apologists respond to use Paul and say, well, uh, could it be the hiddenness of God? You're not as neutral as you think you are. Uh, could it be that your fallen condition has affected the way you reason or reason against God? I think Parsons is at least allowing for that Again, in the, and, I, and I really admire it. I really admire the article. And, and don't get me wrong. I don't think Parsons is like Anthony Flew about to believe in God. I don't see anything that that's the case. And he, uh, he has a lot of rhetoric to fire at Christianity. I've listened to his debates. But Joe, I think he's making a powerful point there that our moral condition can even influence the way we think and reason. Now, again, I want to overstate that because if I met Albert Einstein, I would be very appreciative and I would say, Professor Einstein, you know, talk to me about physics. Help me think about how math relates to the world. Uh, the noetic effects of the fall does not mean that we can't know anything or that non-Christians don't think as clearly or carefully as Christians do. But when it comes to the spiritual issue of God, it is not merely an intellectual issue. This is where I think the presuppositional apologetic uh, focus does some really good things. None of us are neutral. We all bring presuppositions to the table. And I, I think that's, that's a part of it. And just as we have cognitive biases, just as we have prejudices, this idea that I'm morally accountable to God it seems like something we push back on a daily basis. Yet when we come, as our old friend Dave Rogstad used to say, 
you know, we come into the light and we say, Lord, I've blown it. I confess this sin. Uh, the, the Greek that I can read says the blood of Jesus keeps on cleansing us from our sins. I think there are often times we sin and we're not even aware of it, but the blood of Christ keeps on cleansing. The spirit brings to our conscience uh, an awareness of these things. I want to hit, a, I want to hit uh, another issue uh, and then do a little summary and that'll put us in a good spot uh, for our next two programs, where we'll look at the biblical issues and we'll look at the objections. But here is G.K. Chesterton, who was a great Christian author, a Catholic author uh, in the 19th century, uh, read by Tolkien, Lewis, many other people from his book, Orthodoxy, which I highly recommend. He talks about original sin's explanatory power, and this is what he says, just a brief quote. He says, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. <laughs> I, I think the example of Parsons shows us that's the case. It is, you want to move away from this. Now, now again, I, I want to make sure our listeners are clear. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy rejects original sin, but the aspect of original sin that they reject is our guilt in Adam. They accept the idea that we have a sin nature or we have this proclivity to sin. Um, I don't think that's strong enough. I, I, think, I think the Reformed and the Lutheran are right when they say we are totally depraved. Now, I remember trying to explain that to my, to my mother-in-law, that she was totally depraved mm. and she didn't like that. And I said, but it doesn't mean, I think what you think it means. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you can be. It means that sin has affected our entire being. That reform is not enough. We need a savior. Um, I think that that's exactly right. Um, and so that question of, of sin and, and when we get into these debates, about predestination and election, I have a chapter where I talk about, is salvation graspable by the human will when we are in sin? And is the gospel resistible when we are in a state of grace? I think that that has a lot of import uh, when it comes to these issues, when we debate questions like Molinism and, uh, you know, the, the other ideas of compatibilism, I think sin and grace play a really, really important part. Okay, the, the, the last area that I want to touch on, Joe, is I think when skeptics say the Bible's filled with errors, um, I think we can point out, well, there, there's one that it confirms every day of our lives. There's something fundamentally, there's something to use uh, Parsons' term, irremediable. There, there is something fundamentally flawed. There, there is something at the core of our being. And this is what I think you would expect if you read scripture. This is, I think, what you would expect if you look at your life. And so 
why can't we make the argument that, look, Christianity has a lot of explanatory power. Christians have been talking about this for centuries. It is their anthropology. But another part of that is we're made in the image of God. The reason that we can recognize our brokenness and our fallenness is we already have these moral categories and the Holy Spirit shines his light upon us. So I want to make the case that I think Christianity scores pretty high on the practical tests. Does Christianity work? Well, it, it, I think it does a great job of diagnosing the problem. Then I think many people, the cure does really work. Um, you want to be a lot happier. You want to be a lot more fulfilled in life. Follow the Ten Commandments. Do you want greater satisfaction in life? Believe that God exists and you can have a relationship with him. Um, I think Christianity does work. Uh, I think, though, we need to look very carefully at how potent the sin is, but yet also how even more greater how grace is. And I think the existential uh, experience. Um, Joe, I think the reason why uh, St. Augustine's book, Confessions, has been voted maybe the greatest Christian book outside of Scripture is because Augustine was smart enough and insightful enough not to just write about his own life. I think he was writing about humanity. And the reason that Benedict XVI can read it and say, wow, I feel like he's a contemporary, uh, an empathetic friend, and why somebody like me, uh, an evangelical Protestant, would say the same thing, is that Augustine is telling us this, this human situation. We, we have longings. We have uh, a desire for truth, goodness, and beauty. And we realize that we're broken. We're, we're fallen. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. Uh, we need forgiveness. Um, you know, Christianity has communicated that for a long time. And I think that, I think what makes Christianity unique is, yes, it relies upon the Hebrew Bible for the Imago Dei. But Christianity's idea of original sin runs even deeper than the Hebrew Old Testament, although what does the Hebrew Old Testament say? Well, we're going to look at that in a, another show. But uh, King David says, uh, I have been conceived in iniquity, and I've come from my mother's womb speaking lies. These are very powerful points. And uh, I think, Joe, if somebody if somebody came to me and said, look, Give me the bottom line, Ken. Why do you believe that God exists and why do you think Christianity is true? I I don't think I would rely on uh, the cosmological, teleological, moral, ontological, or just evidence for the resurrection. I think I would say something along these lines. I think that Christianity has great explanatory power and scope. It makes sense of the world. It makes sense of the things I can see and the things I can't see. It makes sense of me, and it makes sense of who this man named Jesus of Nazareth is. And I think I think a lot of it starts with original sin. So 
that's the that's the case. Again, in the next program, we'll look a little closer at the biblical passages and see if they support this idea. Then we'll look at some objections. And, and again, there are Christians who disagree with this. Usually it's the guilty part, guilt and Adam part that they differ with. Yeah. Great stuff. Well, thanks again for your thoughts, Ken. And we sure hope uh, you who are listening are enjoying benefiting from this kind of discussion that you're able to use it as you reach out to either skeptics of the faith or perhaps to shore up areas in your life that uh, you haven't thought through carefully. We hope uh, this podcast has been beneficial in that regard. Uh, you can reach out to Ken and let us know your comments and questions. Uh, that would be at RTB underscore K samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment here. In fact, I, I think there have been a, a few that have come in recently. Ken, let me let me read a couple of these. Uh, let's see here. Here's one. Clear Thinking has been my favorite podcast for the last 10 years. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Thank you. And the name starts with a D and ends with an R. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the person's from another country. Um, you probably know where yeah, it can. But, I talked uh, with them on, on Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Cool, cool looking name, but I, I, I'll just say DR. Thank you very much for that compliment. Uh, here's another one. I guess people have taken your classes and are commenting as well, Ken. I've taken the critical thinking course through RTB twice. So much great information. I'll probably take it a couple more times for refreshing. Judy Smith. Mm. Thank you, Judy. And here's another one. Professor Samples, you're the best teacher ever. I remember <laughs> taking many of your classes 25 years ago. Wow. I don't think there's an equal Wade Phillips. That's Ken, have you been teaching that long? I have. I, I probably was a better teacher back then. I don't know. <laughs> I was thinner then, and I, I can oh. remember more names in those days. Oh, that's great. <laughs> well, yeah, you've had a long career of, of teaching at uh, Biola University and other places, as well as with reasons to believe uh, with the critical thinking course. So people are benefiting from it. We're glad to hear it. We're glad to read your comment here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.